Hello and welcome to Marking the Roll. Good to have you listening. My name is Phil Dye. Um, Last week we looked at teacher professional development. We're not going to revise that, but if you wish to um, hear what we we talked about, um, just go to episode 14. Also, we're not going to cover the Uh, The emails and the messages that we've had, we'll do that next week. Um, We're not going to do it every week. This episode, episode 15, is on the new behaviour policies that have been introduced into Australian schools. If they haven't already been introduced in certain states, they will be introduced. Now, as an example of some of those in Queensland, they've made it that it's illegal in the in the policies to put a student on detention or to keep them in at lunchtime. That's just a, a small part of that behaviour policy. Um, in New South Wales, they've made it that you can't suspend a student more than three times per year. They have to be allowed back into the classroom. In Victoria, you can withdraw privileges um, and uh, not allow a student to go, say, to a sports carnival. It's a little bit different to Queensland. They're just tiny little uh, parts of the behaviour policies. Now, of course, we can't look at behaviour policies without looking at the inclusion policies because that's where the behaviour policies fit. They fit within that. So we can't separate the two They are very closely linked. Now, the inclusion policies were introduced to ensure that all students, regardless of their their race, their religion, their sexuality, um, their age, their gender identity, uh, their disability, sexual orientation, could be educated in mainstream schools. Now, for gender, race, sexual preference, for all of that, That doesn't matter at all. But when it comes to disability, there are some conditions that will interfere with the education of other students in the class. Through no fault of their own, uh, a student's brain chemistry means that they'll be calling out, they'll be disrupting. Uh, We've had examples of uh, chronic spitters in a classroom, masturbators, Um, We've had lots of issues that do disrupt a class. They disrupt the teacher, of course, but they disrupt all of the other students in that room. Now, to have that individual in that class, is that entirely fair? A special setting may be better for those particular students. Now, those who wrote the inclusion policy had no experience in the classroom. They weren't teachers. Well, that was the case in New South Wales anyway. So the, they were ideologues, really, and no doubt they, they believed in what they were doing, but they had no experience. So in writing this inclusion policy, it just hit them that maybe there's going to be some behaviour problems when we have students who have never been in a mainstream school who have certain brain disorders um, in a mainstream class. We'd better introduce a behaviour policy that um, will cater for everyone. 
So we can't look at the behaviour policies without looking at the inclusion documents. So we'll be looking at that. And we'll be looking at them through the lens of social validity. Now, what is social validity? It is a very important part of any policy. It is really the practical measure of if a certain policy will work. Now, social validity was embedded in a report uh, commissioned by the Department of Education and Training and conducted by the University of New South Wales. It actually states that social validity is a phrase used by uh, the disability community, uh, and it's a very realistic view of any changes that are going to happen that will impact them and impact others. I'll just read you this quickly from the report. The concept of social validity measures the overall acceptability of an intervention beyond treatment effectiveness. And there's a reference there to strain. This can be done by asking opinions about the practice of the people who are implementing, receiving and consenting to it. And I ask you, the listener, who is implementing these practices Mainstream teachers from mainstream classes in mainstream schools. Those teachers were not asked their opinion of the policies. But also, either were the parents of uh, other students who were outside of the disabled community. In other words, the parents of, of kids who didn't have a disability, they weren't asked about it either. So there's entire cohorts that were missed. Now, to give us a view on this, I managed to interview Greg Ashman. Now, Greg is the author of uh, The Power of Explicit Teaching and Direct Instruction. He is on the staff of a independent school in Victoria, and he runs a podcast called Filling the Pale. So, Greg is an expert on these sorts of matters, and he had this to say. All right, Greg, one of the first uh, points of discussion is that, that the people who write the behaviour policies for different departments usually have no experience in teaching in a classroom, and or if they have, they haven't been in a classroom for 20 years. How does that happen? Well, it's the nature of the teaching profession, really. Uh, teaching is, is different to other professions. Most professions kind of define themselves almost by... Uh, running their own affairs, by running accreditation, by um, being, you know, run, being in charge of who can practice and all that sort of thing, um, and, and training. But in teaching, we don't seem to do that. We, teachers tend to be told what to do by other people, by academics and bureaucrats who, as you say, sometimes have never taught, sometimes taught 20 years ago, and they've got no skin in the game, uh, as it were. And add to that, um, the fact that uh, public school teachers in Australia generally are not allowed to speak out about uh, policy issues in schools. When you have a review of something like uh, exclusions in uh, school exclusions, the only people that can talk to that are activists and campaigners, and you don't hear the views of teachers. Now, why this has arisen um, is an interesting question. I think it's to do with the origins of the modern teaching profession in the uh, 19th century and the fact that it was a very feminized profession. So um, people thought, you know, that women couldn't um, run their own profession. So they needed these um, wise outsiders to tell them what to do. And I think we've inherited that. And we still have this system where 
the people who d- decide how to train teachers, the people that, who decide who can practice as a teacher are not teachers. Now, behaviour issues with students doesn't just affect that one student and it doesn't just affect the, the, the teacher who's dealing with that student. It has an impact on many, many people and uh, the other students' ability to learn. Have you found that in your, in your career? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, this is the one thing that... So you have a lot of research. What, one of the things we have to realise about the way that the education is structured is that to get ahead in an education faculty of a university, you've got to produce a lot of research, and it helps if that research uh, ticks the right boxes, is on message, sends the right signals, um, because then um, you, you'll get ahead, you'll get your, your promotion, and you'll, you'll build a career. None of that, of course is anchored in what happens in a classroom. It doesn't have to be practical. It can be sociological. It can be based on, um, you know, interpretations of what various French philosophers would have thought of things. Um, as long as it's within the, uh, the the orbit of the sort of things that these people are, uh, find fashionable, essentially, it, it, it moves ahead. Now, one of the areas that is fashionable is um, the idea of uh, what we might call full, ex- full inclusion. So this is the idea that all children, whatever their needs, uh, whatever their disabilities, whatever their disorders, should be placed in mainstream classrooms and the the classrooms should change in order to accommodate them. And it's a very simple idea. So it's it's a simple um, thing to get behind and to campaign on and and you can launch a a campaign um, as an advocacy group on that issue. The problem is that it's not very practical um, because... Teachers will say, well, actually, how are we going to do that? Can, can you tell us exactly how we're going to accommodate kids with these, these diverse needs in a mainstream classroom all the time? And it's not as if teachers aren't um, trying to or willing to accommodate kids with different needs, but it's the absolute nature of the, the, the request that all children, whatever the needs, at any, at any time must be included. And this means that uh, people are also very opposed to Things like uh, school suspensions, school exclusions, because they are exclusionary, <laughs> quite literally, <coughs> and means that um, that some kids are not allowed in the classroom at certain points. And so they say, we want to ban these things, we want to reduce them, we want government to act, to bear, put pressure on to stop schools excluding kids. But of course, there's a reason why kids get excluded or suspended, and often it's because they're a danger to other students. Um, and it's the other students, you quite rightly, you point out, that get neglected. When you look at the research, of course, what all these researchers do is they look at the kids who are excluded and they say, well, actually, excluding, excluding a child from school doesn't um, help them. It's associated with more negative outcomes later in life. So exclusion doesn't work. But they're looking at it purely from the perspective of the kid who is excluded. Now, whether that's legitimate anyway, I mean, but it's purely from the perspective of those kids. Now, a teacher with 25 kids in front of them, they know the impact that these behaviours will have on the other kids and how it can lead to loss of learning and it can make those kids unsafe. You know, I've, as a school leader in the past, I've been involved in school exclusions and they've invariably been about a kid threatening, hurting um, other students. Um, and, and, and that's the reason that, that you go down that route. So there's a, 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 a unwillingness to consider those other students. 
But the, it doesn't it come down to the fact that they're trying to um, also bow down to the, the very vocal minority groups um, in our society that make the most noise, but really we don't take into account how those minority uh, wishes affect the majority um, because there's all sorts of uh, inclusion now and of course no one worries about race and gender anymore no one worries about beliefs but the the fact that they're grouping all disabilities together as if they're the same that's that's a that's a big concern look i think that we need um advocacy groups for kids with disabilities and i think they should have a voice and i think they've got a very important perspective the problem we have is that that's all we have that, that, those are the only people making the case. So mm. they're the people that are talking to the, the, the minister. Teachers aren't allowed to talk. You know, I, I spoke to journalists. I'm lucky because I work in an independent school, and so that enables me to talk about these policy issues. But teachers in the um, in government schools generally they need permission to talk to the media. They need permission to talk about these issues. They don't generally get it, and so you just don't hear their voice. Now, obviously, mm. the unions are supposed to. Uh, represent teachers' voice and, and, and would claim to do so. But their agenda is much more around pay and conditions and things like that, not um, policies that are enacted in the classroom. And this is why I think we should have enshrined a right to professional comment. So if you're a professional and you want to comment on an issue that is um, relevant to your profession, that should be privileged. I'm not saying that people should have a right to, to disclose confidential details about their p- particular school or pursue personal vendettas, but they should be able to talk about the impact of inclusion policies or, or, or that sort of thing. So for me, it's not the fact that advocacy groups talk. Um, I think that's perfectly reasonable and it's, a, it's an important part of the discussion. It's the fact that there's no one making the, the practitioner case, yeah. the case from the perspective of what this looks like in the classroom. Yeah, very good point. Um, there's a push, Greg, to uh, wipe all SSPs, schools for special special purposes. In Tasmania, for example, they're proudly announcing that there'll be none uh, within the next couple of years, um, which means every student, no matter uh, their ability and disability, will be in, in, in mainstream classes. Now, I, I, I've taught or I've, I've looked after uh, people with immense... Um, extreme disabilities and I mentioned to the Tasmanian uh, representative that what about the person who has 80 seizures a day uh, is blind and and deaf Um, are they going to be in the mainstream class and the answer was yes Um, I just don't quite understand how this blinkered view can achieve equitable education well, it's because it's a very simple... It, it's obviously, it's not going to work for the reasons that you've outlined, but it's a very simple view. It's a very simple idea to communicate. You know, we shouldn't have... Just like we should never suspend kids from school for whatever reason, it's just a very simple line. We should include all kids all the time in all, all classrooms. And it has this appeal that people can get behind it as a, as a moral crusade, and so a lot of people do. Um, and I was reading a paper recently by a couple of academics who were actually making the case that special schools do serve a purpose um, and and the evidence on this people point to the evidence that oh, oh it's overwhelming that kids do better if they're in a mainstream school but that doesn't take account of the fact that um, there's a difference between kids with disabilities and disorders that tend to go into mainstream education and kids with disabilities and disorders that tend to go to special schools they're not the same and so yes the outcomes are different but it's just it's a it's a it's an it's an, a campaign you can get behind and again it's by people who don't have to deal with the consequences. So all these people that are 
saying we should have full ex- inclusion, every kid uh, should be in every in mainstream classrooms. They're not the ones who are going to be in the classroom with the kid trying to make that work. They're the ones writing papers and, 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 and making arguments and, and talking to ministers. So there's this disconnect. But the beauty of it, the, the reason it's so powerful is it's just such a simple idea. That, that everyone can grasp. Uh, Greg, do you think that these policies are contributing to the exodus of teachers from the service? As we know, and in, in, in all over the country and all over the world, teachers are, are leaving the service. Do you think these policies have something to do with it? Uh, I certainly think um, it's part of the issues that we have around behaviour and behaviour management in Australia. We, in the last PISA survey, um, and I don't have the figures in front of me, um, but we were something like uh, 69th out of 74. I'm going to say that that's the exact figures, but it's something like that uh, on on what they called index of disciplinary climate. And, and the way they uh, constructed that, they asked kids uh, questions, 15 year old kids questions about the atmosphere in their classrooms and whether the teacher had to, to struggle to be heard and things like that. And we were way down the bottom of that list behind places like uh, um, the UK and um, the US and Canada. The only other Anglo, uh, uh, Anglophone country in a similar position to us was New Zealand. Um, and so we have a real problem with behaviour in classrooms in, in this country. Um, and this idea that, um, like you have this, this kind of circular logic that anyone who misbehaves, they must do so because they've got a disability or a disorder. How do we know they've got a disability or a disorder? Because they misbehave. And so you, and, and all behaviour is a form of communication. We need to figure out what it is the kid needs. And then if we provide those things that they need, then they will um, not misbehave anymore. And, of course, that's not, that's not consistent with human nature. People do bad things for, for bad reasons, and it's not all because they've got some sort of disorder or because their needs are not being met. Um, but because we've talked ourselves into this, we, we can't do anything about the poor behavior in the classroom. Um, and so we just have to throw people in there and say, well, you know, deal with it. This is, this is, this is the lot of being a teacher. You have to cope with... Um, this, this sort of behaviour, and if you if you can't, um, then maybe you're not cut out for teaching. Well, then of course a lot of people say, well, I'm not cut out for teaching then, and that 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 causes our recruitment and retention problems. Um, Greg, all of your um, works are available on Substack, I believe. Can you tell us how uh, listeners yes. can get your your uh, podcast and your and your written work? Well, if you go to uh, filling the pale, all one word, fillingthepale.substack.com, um, that's where all my uh, newsletters are posted, and you can sign up there for either a free or a paid subscription. Um, my um, uh, my podcast is also called Filling the Pale, and you can get that from all the big podcast providers like uh, Apple and Spotify and, and places like that. And that was Greg Ashman. Greg teaches physics and mathematics and independent school in Ballarat in Australia. He's also the author of The Power of Explicit Teaching and Direct Instruction. And his uh, words, his podcast and his writing can be seen and heard at substack.com. And it's time for a brain break. And now brain break this time is from the Water Runners, a band from the Illawarra. Yes, you may have heard them in episode two and three, but we've had requests to have some more of the Water Runners, and this is their track, Lay That Burden Down. If your heart is full of sorrow, yeah, lay 
rain had burdened down The sun will rise again tomorrow Yeah, lay that burden down Hey! Won't you lay, won't you lay Lay that burden down Sorrow only makes you feel lonely Yeah, lay that burden down Shining on the ocean, yeah, lay that burden down. Let the music set your body in motion, yeah, lay that burden down. Hey, won't you lay, won't you lay, lay that burden down. Sorrow only makes you feel lonely, yeah, lay that burden down. Him last week and so I called around. I said, Hey, Pete, why don't you come out with me and we can lay that burden down? Hey, won't you lay, won't you lay, lay that burden down? Sorrow only makes you feel lonely, lay that burden down. Won't you lay? Won't you lay, lay that burden down? Sorrow only makes you feel lonely, yeah. Lay that burden down. Hey! Won't you lay, won't you lay, lay that burden down? Sorrow only makes you feel lonely, yeah. Lay that burden down. And that was the Water Runners with Lay That Burden Down. You can hear them anywhere. You get your music, Spotify, Apple, uh, whatever. And uh, they're a band from the Illawarra. Terrific band. See if you can uh, get out and see them sometime. You're listening to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers and anyone interested in education. You can keep the podcast going by becoming a member or making a small donation through Buy Us a Coffee. Just go to markingtheroll.com.au and click on the yellow coffee cup. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the matter of ha- at hand, which is behaviour. We're looking at behaviour in the context of the inclusion documents that all Australian states are dealing with. Now, I know that I'm going to get a lot of flack from some parents and from some areas of the community, but I looked up the parliamentary records. If you just go to aph.gov.au, Australian Parliament House, and there is a section on integration and inclusion, and there is absolutely nothing that suggests that 
students with certain disabilities, the disabilities that will interrupt the education of others, that those students can't be taught in a different setting. As a matter of fact, it says that in circumstances of serious disability in which the student posed a danger or the likelihood of interference with the learning of other students, then that student should be in a special setting. I again want to make it clear that most students with a disability will be fine in mainstream classes, but there are some whose disability will interrupt with the learning of others and the safety of others. I managed to speak with a teacher from the Illawarra who deals with these students pretty much every day. Becca Adams has done several degrees in education and I asked her some questions about the new inclusion and behaviour policies. So currently I'm a primary teacher and I'm working in a support unit, mainly with students with or on the autism spectrum. Um, however, I do um, also work with students with intellectual disabilities and behavioural issues in that role. In your career, Becca, have you seen that behaviour has improved or deteriorated? I would say that there has been an increase in behavioural issues in mainstream classrooms and I guess that is due to the fact that, um, you know, we have to abide by the Disability Discrimination Act and that we are meant to be moving towards more inclusive classrooms. So once when these children were moved to segregated settings, we're now seeing them in the mainstream um, classrooms. So I don't know if there's been a rise in behaviour, but I just think it is more prevalent in the mainstream classroom. According to um, the, the DET's own research, and, and the DET for listeners from other states is new, in New South Wales, that, that 40% of suspensions are from students with, with a disability. Now, that seems uh, an inordinate uh, mismatch in the proportion. Are, are you seeing that sort of thing? I think we do see a large proportion of students with a disability um, having these behavioural issues, and I think there's a lot of reasons that we see those. Um, and again, it comes back to the fact that we are moving towards a more inclusive school environment. But there's also, I think, the issue that teachers haven't been adequately prepared for that. I think the decision was made that schools would be more inclusive settings and these children have just been put in our classrooms and schools without adequate training and preparation for how to cater to these and hopefully, you know, help them regulate and manage their own needs. Um, within a school, a whole school setting. Yes, and without the resources and the assistance that that they need, um, and of course, I want to make it clear that it's no often it's no fault of those students because of certain brain disorders or certain disabilities that are no fault of their own, um, and the teachers are then supposed to cater for those students in the classroom. That is a struggle, and that. Um, may manifest itself in poor behaviour by that student. 
Oh, definitely. And I think, um, you know, you put a te- one teacher in front of 30 children and you could have half of those students with certain needs, whether that be them being on the autism spectrum, having ADHD, ODD, mental health concerns, um, anxiety. You, you put that in the mix. How is one person meant to manage all of that? And even if that classroom is fortunate enough to have a support officer in there, I still don't believe that's adequate. And again, you know, you've got to make sure that those people have the appropriate training to meet the needs of those students adequately. That's the only way we're going to see those behaviours come down is appropriate training and support within the school environment. And at the moment, it's, you know, I believe and I've seen it's just not there. It's not there. No, and if you've got uh, maybe 10 students um, with, as you say, say, oppositional behaviour, ADHD or or autism, you really do need 10 assistant teachers in the classroom to deal with that. Oh, definitely. Um, So what's what's the answer, do you think, Becca? Is it is the answer keeping special schools, special schools for special purpose, SSPs, open and available to these students who need that specialist education? Um, or do you think that the mainstream model can work? It's such a hard question. I've really been um, delving into the inclusion model um, in the last two to three years and... Um, if you want to call it hardcore inclusionists, believe that everybody should be in the mainstream classroom regardless of um, their needs and issues. Um, I, on the other hand, am a bit of a realist where I think, and I have seen children that just cannot cope for whatever reason and not, you know, it's not their fault. It's part of their disorders or their disabilities that um, they cannot cope with. The noise, the movement, the rigour of the curriculum, Um, there's all these things that need to be considered. So I think that we do still need to have specialist settings available to these children. However, like anything in life, you need to have options and you need to look at that option from an individual perspective and see what is best for that student. And if it is an SSP or, you know, a similar setting for that student, then make sure we have that still available. If it's a mainstream setting with... um, support then we've got to make sure they have support and those teachers have the appropriate training yes absolutely and and i want to make it clear that not every disability is the same is it i mean i was teaching a boy with cerebral palsy a little while back and the most brilliant uh, student uh, asked the most brilliant questions and a joy to have in the room um so, so there's lots of disabilities that don't disrupt a classroom um but there certainly are some that do and what we're doing is um, actually diminishing the education of other students in the room because of the attention that has to be given to those particular students oh definitely and it also comes down to safety too now you know through no fault for these students they can be quite violent in some and you know i have seen it firsthand um and it's not their first choice it's just what happens when they're triggered and you've also got to put you know the safety of the other students at the forefront of your decision making if it's not safe for them then you know that that other student needs to have another option um teachers need to be safe when they go to work every day as well you know they shouldn't be coming home um 
physically or mentally scarred by the things that happen in the classroom. We, we can't take this one-size-fits-all approach to education. There need to be options and, um, you know, that, that needs to be made available and clear to the parents or carers of that child to make sure that they're given the best opportunity. I know there has been a move to get rid of all um, uh, SSPs, especially in Tasmania, where they're um, patting themselves on the back that there'll be none. Uh, and it, it really does worry me that these poor students are going to be left battling in mainstream classes, the teachers will be battling, the rest of the students will be battling, and nobody wins. Absolutely no one wins. No, and that's, you know, it is this one-size-fits-all approach that we can wave a wand and we will be able to cater to everyone. Now, yes, in a you know, utopian society, that would be fantastic because there are so many benefits to including these people in our society. But there are some there are some students who do not want to be in mainstream and we need to listen to their voice. I've had students that I've worked with in the past who have come from mainstream into a specialist setting because of their um, needs and behaviours. Once they were in that setting, they were so happy and they voiced that. They said, oh, this is so much better. I like this smaller class. I like there's less students. These people are just like me. Now, you know, some will say, oh, well, that's detrimental and, you know, go down that route. But they were happy. And it isn't that at the end of the day what we want for our kids is to be happy when they go to school and to find like-minded people that they get along with, that don't belittle them or don't leave them out. That's what we want for our kids. And if, if that's a set, if a setting like that provides that opportunity for those students to find that, then why are we taking that away from them? Are we, are we, you know, discounting their voice in this as well? Their voice, but also the voice of their parents, because I have it on um, some authority that the SSP principals in New South Wales are researching the parents and the majority of those parents love the fact that their children or their, you know, their, their, their sons and daughters are in these SSPs yeah. because they are improving. They can see their improvement yep. and they actually want to go to yeah. school. And, you know, for a lot of these kids, you know, they will always have um, that high level of support around them. Um, you know, that they're going to go out, they're probably going to live in group homes. They're probably going to have to go to work in a um, in a setting that, you know, provides that same level of support that they've had at school. If we remove all that at school, then what are they going to expect, you know, when, when they leave school? Are we setting them up for success as well when we remove these SSPs? And I think that that's been lost in the discussion as well as how do we set these students up for success and not just those students but all students uh becca in queensland it's become illegal to put a student on detention either after school detention or even lunch detention it's also illegal to um, keep them in for 10 minutes at recess or lunch in order to finish a task because they've been you know doing nothing um what what are you finding is the response from teachers to that? There's a mixed bag. Um, I have lots of contacts in the Queensland um, 
area of teaching and again it comes down to strategies for teachers and support for teachers if you have a student behaving in class well then what is going to happen to that student in life we have natural consequences if we choose to do something there will be a natural consequence be it good or bad that still needs to be in place in schools if you choose to do something if you choose to follow school rules then you will be very happy and you won't you know you'll teachers will like you, your friends will like you, you get to go on excursions, all of these things. If a student is not following school rules, not being respectful, not being responsible, safe, whatever the you know school rules may be, what are the consequences for this student then? And if we're removing detention and we're removing, you know, in-school detentions and after school, all of these things, what is the consequence? Because again, when students leave school, then they suddenly learn that, oh, if I speed, I get a if I, yes. you know, there's all these consequences in life. If I don't that, turn up to work, I get sacked. That's right. So what what are we teaching students in school? And, you know, if, if that's the way we're going to go, fine. But we need to have something in place that is going to be teaching our students because that's what school is about. It's not just teaching the curriculum. It's teaching life skills. If you choose to not follow the rules, this is going to happen. So what is that consequence? Do you think it could be extended out to parents as well? Because a lot of these students who can't abide by rules come from families that can't abide by rules. You know, I've worked at schools in the past where suspensions didn't work because there was no one at home to look after these kids. There was no one to model expected behaviour. There was no one saying, I'm disappointed in your actions. So that didn't work. Um, you know, and that was where in-school suspensions worked with these students because they missed hanging out with their friends. They suddenly realised that, oh, in class I get to be with my mate. All I have to do is do the work, but I still get to go out and play and kick a footy. And that was probably the happiest time for them was that six hours of the day. So, you know... There, you've got to look at the options. You've got to look at what's right for the school and the setting and, of course, the students because sometimes, yes, the parents aren't going to back you up. But there definitely needs to be a big push on natural consequences and we need to you know, have a really good understanding of what that means within schools. And that was Becca Adams, teacher from the Illawarra area of Australia, uh, who does teach uh, students with special needs. And during season one, I interviewed Dr. Sylvia Koresh from uh, the Department of Education in New South Wales. And I thought it was worthwhile, just at this stage, replaying something that she said. We never, ever agree to abuse or violence for our teachers or for other children. So we need to make sure that everyone in that environment feels safe, whether it's the other children in the class, the child themselves, because they may be at risk of serious harm to themselves, but also the staff members. During this episode, we've been looking at certain Australian behaviour policies for schools um, and how they fit within the inclusion policies. And I mentioned at the start that inclusion policies were first and then they thought, well, perhaps we better have a behaviour policy that fits it. We looked at it through the lens of social validity. Do those who are implementing the policies 
see it as practical, can it be achieved? But those who were implementing the policies weren't researched. So, I'm not usually this strident, but I actually believe that the inclusion and behaviour policies from each state education department must be revised. And they must be revised within the lens of social validity. Firstly, those policies have got to be written by people who are teachers and who have been in the classroom very recently. Next, they should be written with the input of the teachers who will implement any policies. Mainstream teachers in mainstream schools. They must have input from those. They also must have input from the parents of students who aren't involved in the disability community. In other words, just the mainstream students. This is the only way we'll have true inclusion, where the opinions of those students and their parents whose education is being impacted by these policies are being heard. Next week, we look at finding a way out of teaching and where teachers can get a job. My name is Phil Dye. You've been listening to Marking the Roll. See you next week.